Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, download or log in or turn to uh, the book of Acts chapter 19. We've been studying Acts last week. I don't want to assume that you were all here last week. Um, I heard a great, uh, I was in a conversation with one of my presbyters. He's a spiritual Paul to me. His literal name is actual Paul. So he is Paul and he's a Paul to me. We were having a conversation two weeks ago about uh, what adjustments we pastors have to make in the way that we lead, the way that we do ministry, and what we're learning about church in a post-pandemic era. Now, post-pandemic might be a little bold. Um, because where I see, I'm like, I've heard about more people getting COVID these last two weeks than from the last six months, but it is what it is. Um, you know, what, what are we going to have to do differently? What, if anything, will we have to adjust for ministry for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And of course, his part of the conversation was he decided to retire. So uh, my job's harder. So I, I'm not, I am not close to retirement. And so uh, we, we were talking together, and he recently earned his doctorate, and he was saying part of his doctoral study was looking at church attendance trends over the decades. And I won't bore you with the whole story. But he narrowed it down to evangelical churches, of whom we would be considered an evangelical church. Ten years ago, the average church attender attended a Sunday worship service an average of 2.4 times per month. So you came twice, and then, I don't know, did you come for half of another service? I don't know how y'all did that, but 2.4 times a month. So um, now let me just ask you, do you think that number increased or decreased over the last 10 years? What do you think? Okay, you think increased? You're an optimist, okay? I generally am too, optimist uh, tempered with reality, but how many of you think it increased? Okay, Mary? How many of you think it decreased? It decreased. Um, now, uh, now this was pre-pandemic that they pulled this. This was the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. It's, at that point, it was down to 1.4 times per month. So that's, what, 17 maybe times a year? That the av- this average, it might not be you, okay? You're like, I've got 50, you know, and if I miss, I watch online or whatever it is, okay? But it was, we were just talking about even as teachers, because that's probably the primary part, even if it's not the thing I get to spend the most of my time on. If I asked you, what would you like to receive from your pastor? Most of you would probably say on the top, someone to teach the Bible to me, someone that I can trust to teach the Bible accurately to me. Um, You know, if you're a professor and you are teaching a three-credit course and students have to be there Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, an hour each of those days for an entire semester, Would you stand up at the beginning and be like, listen, I know you're supposed to be here all three classes a week, but if you come to one out of three for the whole semester, you'll get everything you need to be to someday cut people's feet open to be a surgeon. It's hard as a teacher when you start with the assumption every week that two-thirds of the people hearing you didn't hear what you said in the previous lesson, and you're assuming that they have a familiarity enough of it to build it into this lesson. It's a challenge that we have And now you throw COVID into the mix and you have even more valid reasons why people don't prioritize the regularly coming together with people of their faith and studying and learning the Bible together. And so, you know, we seek the Lord for we as pastors seek the Lord and saying, what, if anything, do we need to adjust? Because 
people still need to hear about the gospel. People need to still know who Jesus is. People who know who Jesus is, you need to be strengthened in your faith. You need to learn. We need to grow. We need to study. One of the definitions of the word disciple, of the Greek word matetas, it's, it's, in, it's the only word in Greek that they use to describe disciple. It means disciple, pupil, or student. You know, part of what being a disciple means is that I'm a student of Jesus. I'm not just an absent-minded follower. I'm a student. You can play follow the leader and not study the leader. You can just get in line and follow. I told the first service, my five-year-old knows how to play follow the leader, as long, and he'll play as long as he can be the leader. You don't want to be the other one. He's the one who now will tell me in no uncertain terms, Daddy, just want you to know I'm the boss of this house. You're not. Not you, not mom, me. No, son, you're not, you're not the boss of this house. Yes, I am, and if you say that I'm not, you are going to time out. So we've got to harness that for good at some point along in his journey, right? I want you to dig in this morning. I want you to listen closely. Um, this passage is going to require your attention. It's not long. It's seven verses long. It's going to require your attention because we want to look at this carefully because many people have put their hands on these seven verses, especially over the last 100 years, and come away with um, very strong opinions that have deep implications about how you know if you're a Christian, about what we believe about the Holy Spirit, about what we believe about what the Bible teaches about water baptism. And I want to do my very best to present to you what the text says, not less than what it says and not more than what it says. And I think one of the best ways to understand where we're going is I've got to go back to last week and catch us up real quick because we met a man last week by the name of Apollos. So those of you who are either here or you listen to the sermon or you've studied this previously, can you give me one fact about the man we met last week, Apollos? What do, did Luke tell us about him? He was a very good speaker. He was an eloquent speaker. And his favorite thing to talk, well, I, I don't know if the text says his favorite thing, but the thing he talked about, the person he talked about the most was whom? He talked about Jesus, uh, of what ethnic background was Apollos? What was his ethnicity? He was Jewish. Not from Jerusalem, though. Where was his hometown? Alexandria in Egypt. And yet we meet him not in Egypt. We meet him in what New Testament city? Starts with an E, rhymes with Rephesus. Ephesus, scholars all over. Awesome, you're really with me this morning. I had to, listen, I had to work so hard in the first service, I was... I was really sweating. It was disgusting. So sorry to those of you that are a little cold this morning. I'll, you know, I didn't know if it was a vest day or not a vest day. To me, every day is a vest day, but today was a bad idea, so that's my bad. But anyway, so we, he was in Ephesus. He was speaking eloquently about Jesus and doing a really good job, wasn't he? Isn't that what we read? People were listening to him, people's lives being changed. And there's two people that were listening to him speak who said, man, this guy's really good. And what he doesn't know a whole lot about Jesus, but the little bit that he knows, he really knows. And wouldn't it be awesome if we could help him understand some more about Jesus that he obviously hasn't heard yet? Do you remember who those two people were? Priscilla and Aquila. So what do they do? They take him aside privately after service. They explain to him, Luke says, more fully and thoroughly about the ways of the Lord. And Apollos was just drinking it all in. 
and it deepened his understanding of Jesus. Now, in no, in no point of the story do we see that Priscilla and Aquila say to Apollos, you know what, that's good teaching, but you're obviously wrong, and you need to be saved. They don't say anything like that. They say, this guy's good. He believes in Jesus, but there's some gaps in his understanding. There's some parts of the story he doesn't know yet. He's, it says, the Bible says he was preaching accurately, which means he wasn't preaching things incorrectly. It just wasn't necessarily deep or thorough. And his limitation was he had one primary set of teachings that he had gotten a hold of in addition to the scripture, and it was from one person. Who was the main teaching influence in his life up to that point? JTB, John the Baptist. So he learned enough from what John the Baptist taught about Jesus being the Messiah that we needed to repent, that we needed to, you could summarize all of John the Baptist's sermons with one word. Do you know what it is? If Boy Scouts should know. Well, okay, yeah, two words would be good. Prepare and repent. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord to make his path straight. He was all about preparing people. Prepare, prepare. Prepare is something you do before the event you're anticipating. Prepare. This is a good thing. If you're a student, preparation happens before the exam. Well, effective and useful preparation, okay? It's something you do before. He went around telling people, prepare, prepare, prepare. Get paired in advance. No, that's another one of those words I don't understand. Like repeat doesn't mean to peat again. I don't know. Anyway, um, get ready. The Messiah is coming. And then when he sees Jesus, he says, behold, here's the one that I spoke of. Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so John the Baptist did teach about repentance in preparation for the soon coming Messiah. He also said that the Messiah was, he's here. Believe in him, put your faith in him, look to him. Now, John the Baptist's life ended at a very young age, very abruptly. But his teaching was very powerful and widespread. And so whether Apollos actually ever met John the Baptist or had simply been exposed to his teaching, that was influential in his life. Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside and say, let us tell you the rest of the story. And it inspired him, encouraged him, gave him more power, gave him more enthusiasm, so much so that he launched into an even more effective missionary ministry and moved on to Achaia, moved on to Corinth, and there was able not only to tell people about Jesus, but was actually able to go toe-to-toe with learned Jewish scholars who argued that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was able to go toe-to-toe using the scriptures and prove from the, the First Testament that Jesus, who John the Baptist spoke of, who lived in their time, who was a contemporary of them, was not only a man from Nazareth, but that he was one and the same as the Son of the God and the Messiah, the Christ who took away the sins of the world, which is why many scholars believe Apollos wrote Hebrews, even though within the letter of Hebrews he's not named. Now, why do I go through all that? Because I want to show you Luke is writing out history of the church. He didn't write it in chapters and verses. He just wrote it all out. Later on, uh, we added verses and chapters in terms of numbers as a way for us to find things and reference things more quickly. Luke did not add a chapter break between the story of Apollos and the story of these 12 men. We did, and I can understand why. Maybe when we put 19 in there, we wanted to start a new chapter when Paul returned to Ephesus, even though you could reorganize it another way and move 18 back to, you know, you could end 18 after verse 23 and start verse 
chapter 19 at verse 24 and say, this is what went on in Ephesus, the ministry in Ephesus, how the church expanded and grew in Ephesus. Or you could group that story together with the story we're about to read and see the ministry of Christian leaders to those who had an immature faith. Because right after Apollos, we run into another group of 12 men. Now, Apollos doesn't come to them. Paul does. But there's some similarities in the spiritual maturity of these men that Paul talks to that we're going to study today and uh, in the life of Apollos. I just want to be very open and honest with you. Some of you who are uh, more advanced in your studies of the Bible, you and, and you may know that there are definitely some divisions and controversies surrounding the verses that we're about to read. In fact, even in our own movement within the Assemblies of God, in between the years of 1916, 1917, and 1918, this passage became such a dividing issue that uh, a, 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 the minority group, about a, a, not minority in terms of ethnicity, but I mean in the smaller number, about a third of those who were part of the Assemblies of God, um, left the assemblies of God over their interpretation of what this passage meant. So I recognize I'm treading on territory that at least for the last hundred years has been kind of divisive because of what what it may or may not say about salvation, what it may or may not say about the actual uh, language that should be used around water baptism and around the purpose and the role that water baptism plays in salvation. I will tell you, I tried to keep those things out of my mind at the first part of my study on this chapter and just read it simply in context with the Holy Spirit and I not being able to completely shut down studies I had done over the years, but really trying to listen to it. And honestly, when I read it that way, I'm thinking, this is, doesn't seem controversial to me at all. I can't imagine that Luke thought, you know what I want to accomplish in this passage? I want to put a stumbling block that will split churches up for centuries. I just don't think that was his intention. Nor do I think this was, um, you know, the Holy Spirit's intention to say, you know what, let's preserve this story. Make sure it gets into the canon of the New Testament so that all generations can read through here and I can, I can just divide people. For I don't think God's intention for this passage was to split us all up. I actually don't even think that the main issues that we are divided over this passage is even the main idea of the passage at all. But they're in there. We need to look at them. So I want to do the best that I can today to not completely nerd out, to not give you, to not turn this into what would sound like a professor, because I'm not one of those. Some of you are, and I know that I'm not, trying to impress you with a bunch of knowledge. What I do want to absolutely do is inspire you to ask some of the same questions that I ask of the text while I'm reading this. And I want to challenge you to join me by looking at what the text actually says and to be very aware of what I call our interpretive imagination. What do I mean by that? This is a story. I'm going to read it to you in a second. You're you're going to imagine it, and I'm going to imagine it. And inside of our imaginations, there's going to be some differences in how we imagine it. For example, you might imagine this conversation takes place on a sunny day. Another one might imagine it's overcast. Another one might imagine it's raining. One of you might imagine that this happens indoors. Another one might imagine that it happens outdoors. One of you might think it takes place by a body of water. Another one might think that it takes place on the porch of a synagogue in town. Now, I, none of those details are supplied by their stories. It's very possible some of you are 100% correct. 
And it's very possible that some of us are 100% wrong. Using our interpretive imagination is not a problem until you decide something you imagine is the only possible way it could have happened. And what you imagine can't be proven or disproven, but you use that element of your imagination to force a conclusion onto the story that the story doesn't provide for you. Now, I'm trying not to give you, get too into these. Do you at least understand what I mean by this? Are you aware of this? Anybody aware of this? I'm going to have to work even harder today. All right, here we go. Glad I wore deodorant. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 19. Jesus, help us. Help us pretend like we care about what's going on here. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus. Do you know that this was not the first time Paul was to Ephesus? Do you know that? Yes or no? How long did he stay the first time? Long time, short time, medium time? Short time. You know what he did in Ephesus the first time he was there? Do you remember? He got on a different plane. Do you remember that? This was his layover. He got on a different boat. He was ready to end his second missionary journey. He was trying to get back to Syria where his hometown was. And on the way there, he rode one boat from Corinth to Ephesus. They got off the boat. He's waiting to get onto the next boat to finish his trip. And while he's in Ephesus, he doesn't go to the room and just order up room service and watch TV for a couple days. Instead, he decides to go where? To the synagogue. And what does he do? He starts preaching about Jesus. And the Jews in the Ephesian synagogue had never heard this before. And they are so into what he's saying. They say, Paul, please don't leave. Please stay and teach us more. No one had ever said that to him. Usually when his teaching got really good, they ran him out of town. But now they want him to stay. And you remember he said, I'm not going to stay. I know in my heart I need to move on. But Lord willing, I'll come back. And so he left in Ephesus, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Luke, John, Mark. He leaves them there and he goes on to Jerusalem, goes back to his home church, gets fired up for his third journey and starts working up and out around the east side. And now he's working back towards Ephesus. And here he comes. Obviously, it was Lord willing that he returned, right? You see that? He said, Lord willing, I'll come back. And now he comes back. Here's the important part. Where he found, what are those next two words? Several. Do you see the last word on the screen? Believers. That's what it says in the New Living Translation. Do any of you in your Bible that you're looking at or holding have a different word there from believers? Disciples. This is important. Bible was not written in English first. That's going to offend some of you, but it wasn't. The earliest manuscripts of this were written in the Greek language. Greek is a more exact language than English. That's why we have some variances in some of these interpretations. For example, in English, we have one word that means believer. In Greek, they have two different words that mean believer. So for us to understand what's going on here, to know what that means, believers, well, Pastor, why should I care? I'm going to prove to you. The way we interpret that one word has everything to do with how you know you're saved. In fact, there's two different ways that this word is being interpreted throughout the last hundred years. And I want you to leave this place today being sure either that you're saved or that you're not saved. I want you to be sure of it. And how you interpret this word is going to set you up one way or the other. That's, it's that important. 
So we do, we, we go back to the Greek. And the Greek word is mathetas, mathetas. That's the Greek word. It's, if you do the word study, it's Greek word number 4100 in the Strong's exhaustive, exhaustive Concordance. I did it, okay? I did this study on my own. That word, uh, mathetos, is found 26 times in the book of Acts. Now, there are some people who say, and it's the word that we usually translate disciple in Greek. Mathetos means disciple, pupil, student. That's what it means in Greek. There's another word for believer that's only used, I think, five times in the New Testament's word 504, but I'll leave that for you for later if you want to go there. What I want you to see here is we have to decide, were these men he talks to saved followers of Jesus, fully converted at the time that Paul starts the conversation because of how this unfolds? And I will tell you that there is one position that says these disciples were obviously and that word always bothers me when it's not obvious because you're just leveraging, you're leveraging my stupidity against your perceived arrogance when you say it's obvious when it's not. They'll say, obviously, these men were not saved at this point in the story. Well, let me keep reading and we'll come back to this. Mathetas, remember that. Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them, No, they replied, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then, what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they replied, the baptism of John, verse 4. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus, verse 5. As soon as they had heard this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied there were about 12 men in all. This is loaded with all kinds of things. People have all kinds of opinions about it. It's like if you could cram it all into seven verses, it's all there. What does it mean to be saved? Can you be saved and not know there's a Holy Spirit and not have been baptized in the type of baptism that was assigned at the Great Commission and practiced by the early church and the early apostles, was it enough for them to just have a repentance and a belief? Were they not? When you get baptized, is it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that we're supposed to say before we dunk you? Is it supposed to be in the name of Jesus? And if you're baptized in any other way than in just his name alone, is it invalid? Was Paul setting up a formula we're supposed to repeat throughout the rest of time here? What about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Did what, what of the Holy Spirit do we get at salvation? Is there a distinct and subsequent event experience in our life that is available to believers where you can receive uh, an immersion in the Holy Spirit such that there's speaking in tongues and other evidence that you've received? It's all packed into this, these verses, and I've got like 20 minutes to try and make sense out of it to you, and people have debated this for 100 years. Um, my goal is not to try and make sense out of all of it. I want us to look at what the text shows us and what it doesn't. Let's go back to where we were before Mathetas. And let's think, were these men saved in the eyes of the Lord prior to Paul's questioning? Let's go back to verse 2. Verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 1. 1 and 2, right? He finds several believers, Mathetas. Well, Luke uses, here's the counter argument. Let me get my head straight here. 
Some will say these were obviously not believers. First of all, they will agree the word is methathos and it means disciple. And what they will say is there are other times in the New Testament writing where groups of people are called disciples, but they were not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of someone else or something else. So we can't conclude that just because Luke says that they were disciples, he doesn't say disciples of Jesus. He just says disciples. Well, they're right, but then they're wrong. Here's the right part. Well, Pastor, that's arrogant. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm just going to show you the facts and you decide, okay? John chapter 6, verse 66. From that point forward, many of Jesus' disciples deserted him and followed him no more. They're called disciples, but they deserted him. Then there's another passage where it talks about the disciples of John the Baptist. They're the followers of John. So they say, Luke is not being specific. He's leaving. He just wants us to know that they were disciples, but he's leaving it open-ended. Well, here, okay, well, let's just look at Luke. Luke didn't write John. Luke wrote Acts and Luke. Luke uses that word, methethos. Do you remember how many times I told you he used it? 26 other times in this letter uses that word. I looked at all 26. Every single one of the other 25 times he uses the word methethos, it describes the group of disciples, the same ones that you and I would know that follow Jesus Christ. He uses them to describe people who were converted and in their following Jesus experience. They had been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and they were followers. Now, is it possible that Luke decided that one of those 26 times, he's going to call this group Mathetas, when other times he could have called them 12 Ephesian men, he could have called them 12 religious people. He could have called them 12. He could have used any other words in his lexicon of words, but for whatever reason, Luke, when he's writing this history, wants the reader to consider these people to be in the same type of spiritual state as the other 25 times he uses the word. Does it at least seem reasonable to you, based on just that verse, that Luke wants us to think of them as disciples of Jesus? Does that seem reasonable to you? Where would he have gotten even the idea when he's writing this down, from whom or from what source would he have gotten the idea that at the time this conversation begins, Paul considers and those men consider themselves to be believers in Jesus? Where would he have sourced that information? Paul, absolutely. He has 12 other options. What would one of his other options have been? Who else could he have spoken to? One of the 12 believers in the story, friends. Didn't Luke say, I write all of this as an eyewitness testimony? So there's 13 people who were there that we know for sure. He talked to at least one of them, and they would all agree that at that time, they were mathetas, they were disciples. Jesus, give me strength. Here we go. All right, let's keep going. Let's keep trucking along here. Paul asks them a question. Verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Let's leave that there for a second. Some of you are like, this is Assemblies of God Church. I know where he's going to go with this. You might, you might not. Let's leave that there for a second. When you believed. Pay attention. Lean in on this. Your salvation and your understanding of it depends on what you do with these verses. This indicates that before Paul asked that question, there's some type of exchange of introductions and information that took place between him and these 12 men. 
And in that, Paul learned something about them. We have no indication to believe that Paul met them before. It says, Luke says, he found them. Indication that he, had, he didn't have a relationship with these guys before this conversation. But Paul must have learned something about their history or about their life before he asked this question. Can you read that question and at least tell me two things he knew about them based on some prior conversation they had prior to this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What's one thing that he learned about them? They believed. What's the second thing related to that? They believed when? At some point prior to their conversation. Now, unless Luke is misrepresenting Paul's recollection of what that conversation was when he had it to throw us off the trail, we have no reason to believe that Paul himself was unsure whether or not they were saved. There are many people who say Paul obviously knew they weren't saved, and the reason they, he knew they weren't saved are evidenced by his next questions. Then why would Paul use the Greek word pistuo for believed? Pastor, I have no idea. Didn't even know that that word sounded kind of like a bad word when you said it, but I didn't even know that that was there. Pistuo, I did the word study again. You're welcome to do it. It means to have faith with respect to a person or thing. It's also used in Acts 11.21. Let me do you one better. Paul himself loves that specific word. There's multiple different words for believe in the Greek. He uses this one more than 20 times when he writes his own letters. More than 20 times he uses the word for believe. And it's always in connection with the saving faith placed in Jesus. In fact, one of the most famous places he uses it, let me read it because I don't think I quoted it accurately in the first service. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How can they call on him to save them unless they peace you owe in him? And how can they peace you owe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Paul says it is impossible to be saved without that kind of belief. So in his question... He's making a conclusion. At least that's what it seems to me. He's not debating that they are saved. But he's probing a little bit deeper to see how much do you understand about salvation? How much do you understand about the Lord? What do you understand about water baptism? What do you understand about the Holy Spirit? And you know, we as seasoned believers get offended when people probe in on these areas. Every Friday I go, it's my day off, right? Some of you know what that means. You have a day off, but it's not really. I go, you know, I go up to Green Dragon in Pennsylvania to the auction there and buy and sell things and do my side hustle stuff. And every time I'm there, there's this place I have to walk. And every week that it's not raining, there's a group there at this little hut. And they're just there to pray with people and hand out tracts. You're going to think less of me. There are weeks I'm just like, Lord, please don't let them single me out today. I just don't have time to go through this whole dance with them. Terrible thing for me to think. I don't begrudge them. Do you know what I really get uncomfortable with? And this is just me personally, and I shouldn't be, and I'm getting better at this. If they single me out, they're going to be like, friend, have you heard of Jesus? And you know what I really want to be like? Do you know who I am? 
And they're going to be like, like most people, I have no clue who you are. You little fish in a little pond. But you know what I really want to be like? Well, guys, listen. Yes, of course, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor of a church. What I'm really saying is I don't want you to probe any more than that. But you know, Paul is different. When Paul gets into a conversation with people, he wants it to go spiritual. You see that all throughout his ministry. You know what Paul's not content to do? Paul's not content to be in the checkout line with somebody and something about religion comes up. The person says, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian too. God bless you. What church you go to? I go to this one. I go to this one. Oh, that's awesome. And you think, well, that's as far as we're going to go in this conversation. And you walk away and you think, well, I wonder if they're a Christian like I'm a Christian. They say Christian, but they, they just go to church. What kind of a Christian are they really? And you know, a lot of times we don't want people to dig that deep. Even as a pastor, when I meet new attenders of our church, I'll be honest with you, it's a lot easier and more comfortable for me to talk about how did you find out about us? Do you live in the area? What brings you to our church today? You know, but if they say, oh, well, I, you know, I've known the Lord my whole life, a lot of times we're just like, okay, box check, but you know what? That doesn't really tell me a whole lot. What do you mean when you say you've known the Lord your whole life? And then some people are like, well, what do you mean? What do I mean? Well, what does salvation mean? Why are you asking me these questions? Sometimes we put up all these walls. Paul was the type of guy who cared enough about someone's soul to make sure they were sure. This is not for him. This is for them. He's the type of guy, because you know what? I know a lot of people say, oh, I believe in the Lord. They're not saved. They're not on their way to heaven. Jesus says, many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, here's my resume. He's going to say, I didn't even know you. Jesus indicates there's people, many people, who think they're saved when in fact they're not. Don't you want to be sure? None of you do. Praise Jesus. Don't you want to be sure that you're saved? What could be more important to you than that? Lord. There's nothing more important. Your money, your house, your job, your fashion, your health, none of it matters. What matters is do you know Jesus? Has he saved you? Are you new? Are you on your way to heaven? Are you living in relationship with God? That's more important than anything. Anything. Stopped Paul in his tracks. He wanted them to be sure. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. There's a school of thought that says, here's more proof they weren't saved. He asked them if they received the Holy Spirit, and they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. It does not say that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit in a way that they weren't aware of. But that's ancillary. Here's the conclusion that a person I used to have a lot more respect for that I turned to regularly for teaching. I came across his teaching on this passage, and here's exactly what he said. He said, friends, if you have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. How can you possibly be saved if you don't even know there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit? And therefore, here is another proof that obviously shows these men were not saved. I have news for you, my friends. Anybody who tells you that you cannot be saved if you don't know who the Holy Spirit is, is teaching you heresy. 
Show me in this Bible where it says, in order to be saved, you have to believe, you have to repent, and you have to be able to know who the Holy Spirit is. Show me. You know why you can't? It's not in there. Now, should you know who the Holy Spirit is? Yes. There's a difference between saying, I want to be saved, but I don't believe in a Holy Spirit. That's a problem. But to say, well, when I, got, when I repented and when I put my faith in Jesus, I didn't know anything. I didn't even know what a Holy Spirit was. Does that mean that God's going to deny you access to the free gift of salvation because you can't pass that part of the test? Well, then go back and talk to the thief on the cross next to Jesus. What does he know about the Holy Spirit? Nothing, not a lick. What does he know about the Pentateuch? Probably nothing. What does he know about water baptism? Nothing. You know what he knows? He knows he's a sinner. He knows he is guilty. He knows he's a criminal and he owns it. I deserve it, he said. This man does it. You know what he believes? That man's innocent. He's holy. He's perfect. You know what else he believes? He believes in a few moments he's going to die and he's uncertain about it. He knows he's not lived a life that's going to take him into the afterlife. He turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's belief, there's repentance, and what does Jesus say? He turns to the man and he says, you know what? Let me ask you a few qualifying questions first. Break down to me the Holy Spirit. He says, I tell you, the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That joker hadn't been baptized. Joker didn't know about the Holy Spirit. Gloriously saved. Every time we see someone converted, I challenge you, show me a time. Show me with the Corinthian jailer when he's laying on the ground. What do I have to do to be saved? Well, he's already got repentance covered. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved right after you take a short entry exam on the Holy Spirit. We've got three classes over here and we'll teach you. And that, that's not what he says. I'm telling you, anybody who starts adding additional qualifications to salvation beyond what the Bible teaches is teaching you heresy. We can't be in disagreement over what I have to do to be saved. We can't be in disagreement because it's going to leave a whole bunch of you wondering. Do I need to have, is, my Bible says this, we are saved through grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus alone, period. Period. Well, that doesn't sound like enough. I know, right? But I didn't make it up. We need to add, well, you, how can you be saved if you're not baptized in water? How can you be saved if you don't even know if there's a Holy Spirit? Well, the only way you could do that is by grace and faith. Otherwise, you've got to add some works in there. And there's just not going to be enough time to get some people saved, so why try? We don't have water nearby. They can't go through a theology class. I see no evidence, none whatsoever, to indicate that Luke is suggesting to us that Paul did not think that they were saved and as a supporting claim said, well, obviously, they couldn't possibly be saved because they haven't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. It's just not there. What I do see, though, is he's trying to figure out where they're at spiritually. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you been saved? When did you believe? Okay. 
Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, no. Then his next question, then what baptism did you experience? By that question, we indicate that Paul knew there's a couple different ways people are practicing baptism. He wants to know which one. This is clear throughout all of his writing. Later on, he tries to put an end to all these multiple different, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. He's gonna distinguish between two different ways baptism was practiced here. But he says, what baptism did you experience? And they said, the baptism of John. Now, we talked about this already. JTB, John the Baptist. He was a big advocate of being baptized in water. Why did he motivate people to be baptized in water? Baptized in water in order to be what? He'd preach a fiery hot sermon. And as the response, people were coming all over Jerusalem and they were being baptized in water after what they heard. Why did he tell them they should be baptized in water? What did his preaching mean? It was to do what? Two things. Repent. It was an act of repenting. I want to repent of my sin. And where, how did they usually do repentance back in the Jewish days? Sacrifice. This is a little different, isn't it? No, it's not an animal. You get in the water. Because you know that there's a holy coming Messiah and we're not right with him. Baptize to show that you are repenting of your sins. And it's looking ahead. It's preparing you for the Messiah. John's baptism was to prepare you for the Messiah. That's what it was. All through his teaching, prepare. it was looking forward. I'm going to repent because I've heard about this coming Messiah and I want my heart to be clean and right. And I'm going to believe in the one that's to come. John's baptism was an act of looking forward. Right? It was something you did to, as an act of repentance. When Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about baptism in water to look forward to a future day when he would come. The baptism Jesus talked about was not an act of repentance. It was an act celebrating repentance, celebrating the completed work of the cross, identifying with Jesus, obeying his instruction to follow his example, being baptized in water. It was not looking forward. It was a celebration of something that had already happened. You see? Now, to the naked eye, both of those things might look the same, but they're not the same. John's baptism was not the same as Jesus's instructions for baptism. But John's baptism wasn't evil. It wasn't horrible. It wasn't wrong. It just wasn't a replacement for this one because the motivation of what both of those instances, those experiences were different. One was to look ahead to someone who had come. The other one was to say, thank God he came and I've experienced the fullness of his completed work and I'm a new person. They're different. Do you see that? So the beautiful thing that Paul does next is that he in no way diminishes their previous spiritual experience. He builds on it. Look what he says in verse four and what he doesn't say. Paul said, John's baptism called for, do you see that next word? Repentance. In other words, he can already say these men understood repentance. You've been baptized. John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people in the one who would come later meaning Jesus. He's not saying, oh, you guys really messed up. I don't see that anywhere here. Nowhere. I see him building on two key 
terms that he uses all throughout the New Testament to describe salvation. He just gets there in the gospel they're familiar with. Do you see the two words he always talks about in that verse? Repent and where's the other one? Believe. They're both there. Repentance from sin, believe in the one who would come later. That's what we, that's what we see here. So he's differentiating between their baptism that they had already experienced. They had all been baptized, but they had been baptized according to the teaching of John for the repentance of sins. When we baptize people, I point over here to where you you guys are sitting. When we baptize people, I'm not baptizing unrepentant hearts. And when they come back up out of the water, they are suddenly now in the eyes of God, repentant and clean. That's not what happens. We practice what you said, that it's something that it's a decision we make after salvation in accordance with Jesus's instructions as lived out by the apostles as a public identification with Christ for what he's already done in our lives. We don't get baptized before we're saved. That's not really a baptism. That's a dunking, but it's not a baptism Jesus' way. It's something you do consciously that you're aware of. All through the New Testament, you see that. So he's differentiating between these two things. Now, here's what happens next, verse 5. This is where we get into, this is where really kind of our denomination splintered apart. They really grabbed on to this next verse, really. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's exactly what it says. There are some who say this. Paul recognized they weren't saved. They were only partially saved. They had repentance down, belief down. But they had not been baptized in water and they had not received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues and prophecy. Therefore, they were only partially saved and Paul is completing it. Can I also tell you something? There is no partial salvation. What in the world? Show me that. You really, do you really believe that the gospel teaches you can either be saved, not saved, or mm, kind of halfway? Well, pastor, what do you call walking on the fence? Show me that. You're saved or you're not. Well, how do I know? Well, Jesus knows, and you know how Paul's going to tell you how to know. And I'm going to leave you from here today how you can know that you can know that you can know that you're saved. And it has to do with God putting a seal on you that you know he put on there, and you can go back to that seal and say, yep, that seal is in me and with me and on me, and because of that, I don't have to ever wonder. It is the proof that it is a down payment of my future inheritance. Exact words Paul uses in a letter he writes to Ephesus. And that's what he's It's only 12 away. You got to set it for 1230. I'm just kidding. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. You know what it shows? They were teachable. They didn't, honestly, there wasn't a lot of theology being debated here. I see nowhere where Paul says, you know, do you know about tongues? I don't even see that he brings it up. He just says, he builds on what they know. And they hear about being baptized in Jesus. They're like, I can almost see them being like, whatever we need to do, just lead us by the hand, help us understand. They were baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus. Two other things that kind of split our denomination here that I want to look at. And again, I realize people have argued this for 100 years, and who am I to come along and try and think that I'm going to straighten it out? I just want you to see what the text says. One group says they were rebaptized. It's the only time in the New Testament we have an example of someone who says, I was previously baptized, and that same group of people were baptized again. It's the only example we have of it. And now let's just, uh, I disagree that they were rebaptized. That means baptized more than once. I think in a way, semantics, you could say they were baptized more than once. 
but I don't think what Paul is showing here is that their first baptism, let me say it this way. The prefix re means what? To do over, to do what over? The same thing. So if you rewrite, you're writing the same thing again. I will not make fun of the math teacher. I will not, I, I'm getting back into my high school years. But anyway, you got to write it a bunch of times. Same thing. If I write, I will not make fun of the math teacher, and then I go down the next line, I write, I will do a better job on my homework. I'm not rewriting. Have I lost you? They were baptized in water under the teaching of John the Baptist, either himself or under one of his disciples. And they did so with the intention of demonstrating a repentant heart. And they're looking at an act of looking ahead to the Messiah. John's saying, have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? In the name of Jesus is a phrase they used a lot in the New Testament to indicate the authority of Jesus' way, healing in the name of Jesus, power in the name of Jesus. Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? His way, post-belief, not looking ahead to repentance, but celebrating what Jesus has done. Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? No. So he says, let's be baptized that way. This is not a repetition of this. Have I lost you? It's, now you could say, it's, a, it's another baptism. Well, I'd agree with that. Of course, semantics. Both of them, you know, dry person going in the water, going the whole way underneath, coming back up. Okay, two baptisms. They're two different kinds. It's not a rebaptism. It's another different baptism. The other thing we grab onto is, and this is what splintered the AG. There was a group that grabbed hold of this 1916, 1917, 1918. They said, aha. Paul recognized that was what was preventing those disciples from becoming saved was that they had not been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, that was preventing them from being saved. And their belief was, Luke's motivation was saying that Paul was establishing a specific phrase which is attached to a theology called modalism or oneness. And that Paul is instituting for us a new form of understanding who God is. That it is all, that, it, that, that he is not only that he's one God, but that he's not a God in three persons. There's, it's not a triune God. It's one God with three different offices, all of which are fulfilled in Jesus. And that Paul was saying, when you go under the water, what we're supposed to, I baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus and only his name. That's where the Jesus only theology came from. And they're saying, if you, and this, and so obviously this started to tug at, they were trying to resolve it theologically. You had about a third of the assemblies of God at that point that was really on that kick. And they tried to, you know, they were trying to say, is there a way that we can just not fracture over this? But the dividing line was where that third said, You cannot be saved unless you have been baptized and baptized in the name of Jesus only. That's how they interpreted this scripture. In other words, grace, faith, water baptism, and in the name of Jesus only, anything less than those, you're not saved. And that's where two-thirds of the assemblies of God were stayed on kind of the presentation I'm giving you and a third said, no, we're going to, you know, you had UPI and you had some other denominations that came out of it and refined some things and 
I'm not up front trying to throw mud and muck at mire and everybody else. I'm just trying to show you as I read this, not because I have any vested interest in, other than my salvation, that I see nowhere else in the New Testament where Paul says, let me supply to you a phrase that's different than what Jesus gave you. And I want to introduce to you a different understanding of the triune God than what Jesus provides. And this is the passage where Luke's going to bring it to the surface and embed it underneath all this other stuff. I just don't see that here. Nor do I see anywhere else in the New Testament where it says, unless and until you're baptized in water one specific way with one specific phrase, God withholds salvation from you. To say otherwise, you know, we're adding conditions to salvation. And I know you don't like me to say this. Any of us, including me, who adds on to what the Bible says is teaching you heresy. It's teaching you, it's teaching you, you have a part there's something you have to do a certain way, a certain hoop you have to jump through in order to be saved. Then why did Jesus come if we could just jump through the right hoop? He didn't need to die. But he did think that it was very important that they understood water baptism is a step, one of the first steps in the life of a new believer. Not baptism John's way because we don't need to look forward to a Messiah. You need to understand he's come. He's completed his work. Water baptism, you might be familiar with it, but the way that Jesus reintroduces that to you is a different image than what you understood through John the Baptist teaching, which Jesus himself submitted to. Didn't Jesus let John baptize him? Not because he had sins that needed to be repented for, but because he was fulfilling his role in obedience to taking on the role of a man. It's a beautiful story I don't have time to teach today. So if that hasn't already, you know, probably raised some issues in your mind, look at verse 7. Then when Paul, then, well, how long after baptism did he do this? I don't know. A day, an hour, a week, depending on who you talk to and what their doctrinal position is, they'll bend this to make this fit their narrative. I care a whole lot more about being right than I do about holding credentials with a certain denomination. It just doesn't hold the weight to me that it does. I want to line up with what I believe the Bible teaches simply and clearly, and not that I'm the final authority on it, but I'm not going to spin something just to keep my job. I'm not going to do that to you. I answer to him, not to you. And I stand in a position that he gave me that I didn't get for myself. And for whatever reason, he gives me responsibility to represent him accurately to you. And that's where my accountability lies. And so, uh, you know, I'm not going to jade this one way or another to protect a doctrinal tenant that I feel is so important that if I go against this, I'm going to lose my credentials. If I lose my credentials, I can't preach at this church. If I can't preach at this church, how do I feed my family? So I better make sure that I do whatever gymnastics, including chopping up and carving and switch. Well, this word means this and just shade it a little bit differently. No, when you get into all that mess, it makes confusion. If you just read simply and clearly, things start to fall a little bit more. I'm not always saying that they're neat and tidy. Sometimes there's some complication there, but I think it comes out a little more clearly. He lays his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. What do we do with all that? Well, did Paul tell them, listen, I need you all line up in a line. Let's get some people behind you to catch you, just in case. Let me, let me tell you about tongues. You know what you all are probably asking God for? You want a language that you don't know what it says. You want to speak it fluently, whether or not anybody understands it. I know that's what you all want. Now, I want you to start imagining words in your mind. Well, Paul, we have a question. You know, when do we use this? I have no indication that Paul talked to them about speaking in tongues at all. You know what he did talk about? He asked him a question. Are you sure? 
You received the Holy Spirit when you got saved? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, well no, we didn't even know there was one. And Paul's thinking, well, Paul's probably thinking in mind like this, oh, God, we've got some hungry people here. When Jesus told the early followers not to go evangelize yet, first of all, when would Jesus ever say that to somebody? Don't go yet, wait here. Especially that particular group. He never had to tell them to wait. They were all about waiting. Not yet, not yet, Jesus. We're not quite ready yet. Not ready for that. He says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until what? Do you remember? I send you the promise. Only thing in the New Testament called the promise of the Holy Father. And who are we to tell him that his promise has an expiration date? The John MacArthur's of the world who want to mutate these things to fit their own story. I'm just telling you. I'm just, he doesn't care who I am, doesn't know who I am, but I'm telling you, be careful. Be careful who you listen to. Many will come saying, here's the truth about God and will deceive many. Just be careful. Whenever you have people that have to, to change and morph and massacre based on assumptions and change our ideas about God and can't back it up scripturally, you've got to be careful, including me. Hello? You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. When Jesus told them, he said, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine them saying, okay, Jesus, that's awesome. We'll wait. How many days? How long should we wait, Jesus? How will we know when you delivered on the promise? Does he answer any of those questions? No. He just says, wait. Wait for, for what? The, the promise. Can you be more specific? He didn't need to be. You know what Jesus is thinking? Oh, I know what you're getting. You won't wonder. You'll know. They had no idea what they were waiting for, but they knew when they received it. They knew who they were waiting for. These guys, they get up out of baptism. We have no indication to believe that Paul said, you know what, now there's another experience I want to lead you into. Um, It's a distinct, you know, all the theological word. He just lays hands on them. And you know what happens next? Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke in other tongues and prophesied. Well, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, then you won't. Fair? I don't want God to do that to me. Okay, well, he, he won't if you don't want him to. But why wouldn't you want everything he intended for you and be sure that you have everything he intended for you? Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want all of the power, all of the boldness, all of the confidence, all of the forgiveness, all of the identity, all of the purpose, all of the joy, all of the strength, all of the wisdom that God had. Why would you just say, you know what, I read this book or heard this guy say that there's, I've got every drop that I'll ever get and I shouldn't ask for any more. Well, why? These guys didn't even know what they were missing. But let me ask you a question. If Paul re-interviewed them after verse 7, and asked the same questions all over again. What do you think their answers would have been? If he asked them, are you saved? What do you think they would say after verse 7? Yeah. Have you, what kind of baptism have you experienced? What would they have said? Baptism in the name of Jesus. Yes. Or if he said this, have you received the Holy Spirit since, since you believe? What do you think they would have said? Do you think 50, if they lived 50 more years, do you think they remembered that day? Yeah. 
Is it fair to imagine that that particular day dramatically changed their life? That experience? Don't you want to encounter the Lord in such a way that it dramatically changes your life? Don't you want to be able to say with confidence like these men? Yes, we're saved. Well, how do you know? Ephesians, I'll just, I'll close with this verse. Worship team, you can come back. Paul wrote a letter later on back to the Christians in this city. It's in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. And this helps me understand, I think, what was primary in Paul's motivation and really drilling down and spending the amount of time with these men that he did. I don't think it had anything to do with his agenda to begin a church and need 12 available men thinking, well, man, Jesus had 12. Maybe this is my 12. Maybe this is God speaking to me today. There's 12 here. He had 12. Maybe I... He heard that they were believers, but he wanted to press in a little bit deeper because Paul was not just concerned with converts. He wanted to make disciples. Why was he so bent on their understanding of the Holy Spirit? Why was that something he was willing to invest time in? Read what he writes to the same church, maybe even assuming those guys are there growing in the church at the time he writes this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, that sounds familiar. That phrase, when you believed, right? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You know what Paul is telling you? Here's how you know you're saved. Have you been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Back in those days, you know what a seal was? It wasn't the thing at the zoo that clapped with flippers and was never out when you were there. They were back doing whatever they did in their bedroom or whatever, living room, the kitchen, and they're not out. Seal was melted wax on rolled parchment that the leader or the king would have a signet ring that they could press into that wax. It would make a unique identifying mark, and it would authenticate that whatever in there was endorsed as the real deal by the king himself. Here's what God is saying to you and to me. When you believe, God does the same thing over your life so that you and everybody else don't have to wonder if you're the kings or not. He puts a seal on you. And it is not only is, it serves two purposes, it authenticates the validity of your salvation. The second thing it does is it is a down payment. It is a deposit. When God doesn't owe me a deposit, I have to give people a deposit when they're not sure if I'm going to come through on paying for something. They want a down payment. They want a deposit. They want earnest money. They want some indication, a good first step to indicate that I'll be good for the rest of it. God doesn't owe us that, but he wants you to know that everything you've tasted from God right now, as good as it is, it's just a taste of what the whole package is going to be. So his questions for you today would be this, if Paul were here. He'd ask you this, are you sure that Jesus has saved you? Are you sure? 
Well, of course, I'm, I'm a Christian. I grew up in church. That's not what I asked. Are you sure you've been saved? Well, I've always been taught, all due respect, I don't care what you've been taught. What does the word say? Maybe you were taught wrong. Maybe I was taught wrong. What does the word say? Are you sure Jesus has saved you? That if God requires your life of you today, that you'd spend eternity with heaven, or is there some doubt? You can be sure today and every day. This is not something God wants you to walk around being like, man, I just hope when I stand before him at the pearly gates and I'm part of one of those jokes that this person came to the gate and Peter was there that I get in. You don't have to do that. You can be sure. Second question. Are you sure you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Oh, you mean speaking in tongues? Do you mean shooting fire? Do you mean raising dead? Do you mean, you know, I started waving banners while I waited? Do you know if you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? You're going to answer one of three ways. Yes, no, or I'm not sure. Charles Spurgeon said this. If you shock a person with electricity, they don't doubt that they've experienced electricity. Shouldn't we be even more confident with the Holy Spirit? So, Pastor, are you saying the Holy Spirit's like experiencing an electrical shock? I'm out. No, 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 no. If you know, then you know. If you're not sure, you can be sure. If you know you haven't experienced the Holy Spirit, then why would you be content to live without knowing that you've received the Holy Spirit in a way that you know, that you don't have to wonder? Well, how do I do that? Very simple. You just receive him in faith. That's all. Right in your seat while you're driving home with one of our prayer team members today. I want to be sure. I want to receive. I want to know that I know that I know that I've received the promise of the Father. He promised. I just want to know. He won't disappoint you. He won't disappoint you. Last question. Are you living under the daily influence of the Holy Spirit? I just see Paul being very concerned about three specific parts in your spiritual journey that he wants us all to be able to identify. He wants to make sure that those men understood the basics about Jesus' repentance and belief, that they understood salvation. He wants them to be baptized in water in the name of Jesus, which was different, different from why someone would be baptized in the water with John. One was preparation, the other was celebration. One was looking ahead, one was celebrating the completed work of Jesus, just different. That was important to him. And he wants to make sure that they have received the Holy Spirit. He wants to make sure that they're sure they've received the Holy Spirit. So my question is for you today. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're unsure, you want to be sure today? When you leave this place eight minutes from now, I hope every single person in this room is sure about whether or not you're saved. Now that means I'm also allowing for the possibility that if you know you're not saved, You might leave this place today being even more sure, I'm not saved. I don't want to be saved. And you see, I simply, I can't make anybody be saved. It's my responsibility to make sure every man, woman, boy, and girl have an opportunity to say yes or no to Jesus. It's your right to say no. I certainly, and even Jesus more certainly, doesn't want that to be the response. But I want you to know, even if that's your heart today, Jesus looks at you with love. Jesus looks at you with compassion. The same way he looked at the rich young ruler. He knew that man was going to say no to an invitation. But Mark remembers what his face looked like. 
It says Jesus looked at him with compassion. Jesus is looking at you with compassion today, friend. And if you're not sure, let me tell you how you can be sure with everything that I understand from the scripture. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. God supplied his grace. My question is, do you have faith to repent? Do you have faith to believe in him today? Bible, well, it's, it's weak. God even gifts you the faith to believe. You just have to put it into action today. Do you believe you need to be saved? Do you believe that Jesus can save you? Do you believe he will save you? If you ask him. Well, yeah, pastor, I, I, I do. Okay. Well, then will you make the decision to turn away from self-leadership and place yourself under the lordship of Jesus? Because if you believe all that you believe, then that will naturally accompany you. Yes, pastor, I'm ready. Okay. And come into God's kingdom through faith by grace. Tell him right now. Tell him, tell him you're ready. Tell him, talk to him. Tell him what you are ready for him to do in your life. Jesus, please save me. I've sinned, please forgive me. I've been leading my own life no more. Your Lord, I surrender to you. I welcome the Holy Spirit into my life. I receive you, Holy Spirit, by faith. Help me understand that you're placing a seal on my life and let me experience you now in such a way that I will never doubt for one moment that you're in me and I'm in you. In your mighty name I pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.